Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, July the 29th, 2023. Uh, almost the end of July. I don't think many of us will be uh, particularly unhappy that July will come to an end. It's the hottest month on record so far, uh, the hottest in 120,000 years, according to scientists. And of course, it's dominating the conversation. On Friday, we did a show with Bethan Patrick, my friend, the book critic who writes for the Los Angeles Times. One of her picks of the week is a book by Jeff Goodall calls The Heat Will Kill You First about extreme heat and how it's going to affect us. I think the more we think about it, the more so much killing us, but killing how we interact with nature. It's killing our relationship with nature. I'm going to Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, tomorrow. Uh, the temperature is going to hit 100 degrees for the first time in seven years. It's always a hot place, but it's going to be unimaginably foreign hot. Um, the sea as well. Ocean temperatures, according to the Washington Post, are off the charts. Uh, in a series of BBC um, photos for July's extreme weather, a lot of the photos are about unnatural images, um, things that we don't expect. Uh, fires, of course, which go without saying. Strange colored skies, unnaturally colored skies. Uh, cars and canoes all submerged in water. Above all else, cities drenched uh, in water, people not knowing how to deal with it. It's all about, I think, the way in which this climate crisis is undermining our relationship with nature. And that's where my guest today comes in. David Camp is a very distinguished landscape architect. He's an expert in integrating nature into our lives, and he has a new book out. It's just in time, I hope. Nature, Design, and Health, Explorations of a Landscape Architect. And he's joining us from Palm Beach in Florida. David, um, congratulations on the new book. Am I right, uh, from your point of view as a landscape architect, is this climate crisis it may not quite be killing us, but it's killing our relationship with nature. Um, it could be killing it, but what I hope is that it strengthens it. Um, one of the things that I have found in my work in, in working with nature and design to deal with crisis is that uh, despair can be clarifying. Um, and I'm hoping in this time um, of despair and uncertainty, um, that we come to terms with changing circumstances and realize the value of what we have. Um, it is so easy for us to, I think, forget the, the personal connection we have to nature when we look at the magnitude of something like uh, climate change. Um, and some of our work, which has spanned from very, very individual responses to crisis to global responses is that I think there's threads here that I'm hoping um, we just rediscover a common wisdom that nature is essential to us. Um, so I agree with you, um, but I'm hoping it's the springboard for us to 
sort of rediscover that common wisdom. It's a nice way of putting it, a reassuring way, David. Um, despair can be clarifying this common wisdom. I wonder, uh, last year, uh, about 18 months ago, I had a conversation with Lucy Jones uh, on the relationship between the natural world and the human psyche. She has a book out, Losing Eden, a fundament, the fundamental need for, the, for the, the natural world and its ability to heal body and soul. Um, do, do you agree with Lucy Jones? Do we have that fundamental need as humans for the natural world? Oh, I, um, it's the essence of my work, Andrew. <laughs> um, I truly do. Um, I think it's, it's essential to being human. Um, you know, when you look at uh, some of the work of E.O. Wilson or Oliver Sacks and, uh, you know, there's these intrinsic connections we have. I think we're fooling ourselves if we think we are separate from nature. We are part of it. Um, and we're foolish to not embrace that and to realize and to nurture, quite frankly, that which nurtures us. Uh, I think um, she's right on the mark. So tell me more about your calling as a landscape architect. Um, it's a very sure. noble calling. You have 30 years of experience. I know that your narrative is, is, is not just about sort of, if you like, the science or even the aesthetics of landscape architecture. It, it, it's the core of your, your identity. How, 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 how has David Camp come together with landscape architecture to find your life? Well, um, I, I guess it started literally with a childhood that was uh, just immense, immersed in nature. Uh, I was fascinated by patterns and everything about nature. And in fact, even I start the book with just the smell of acres of blueberries sizzling in the sun, you know, waiting to be picked, you know, from my childhood in North Carolina. Um, both nature and design were key parts of me growing up. Um, I was fortunate to um, be trained at the University of Virginia. And then my first commission was part of a, uh, the design of Australia's new Parliament House. It was a major commission at the end of the 20th century. And Andrew, what that taught me uh, was that design can instill a sense of identity at vastly different scales. We were designing for an individual, and yet we were designing and had to speak to the nation. Uh, well, a, a health crisis sort of coalesced all these influences in my life. Um, and that is where I came up with that phrase, despair could be clarifying. I know it from a personal experience. Um, I contracted HIV and um, a trajectory all of a sudden changed. Um, and I had to come to terms with changing health and a changing, diminishing purpose. And I had to define what made life worth living. And I looked back to my fundamentals, to my foundation, which was design and nature. And I did, dedicated my career to helping others, to, in a sense, help others address the sense of identity in times of crisis. And it's like a pebble that's dropped into the pond. You know, that initial gesture goes out in hundreds of directions. And sometimes the, you know, the ripples come back and then they go out again. Um, it's been an extraordinary life, which is why I feel fortunate to have the chance to write a book that talks about those pebbles and those ripples that come back and forth. Um, David, we've done some shows also on rewilding. I'm sure you're all too familiar with the movement and the idea of 
of, of, of simply allowing nature to, to grow wild again. Is that um, an alternative to what you do as a landscape architect or is it complementary? I think it's complementary. Um, I guess what I have tried to look at and what I've tried to show in the book is design is a tool um, and design can help us reconnect with nature uh, in a very individual way so that people have choices to connect in their own way on their own terms and at their own pace. And I think rewilding is a, it's a fascinating concept. Um, design can help that. Um, and I, I think, you know, it complements a lot of what we're doing um, as landscape architects. Um, there are places where rewilding is appropriate and there's places where it's not. It's places where nature is appropriate, let's say in intense healthcare settings and where possibly that physical connection is not appropriate. So I think it's just one of the great tools we should be aware of and to use. You mentioned the Australian Parliament, perhaps your best known work, uh, a wonderful achievement. I haven't been to it. Next time I'm in Australia, I'm going to visit. You've done all sorts of different work. You've done old people's places. You've done work with autistic communities um, all over the world. You, you've, 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 you've architected the landscape or, or landscaped uh, the architecture. Um, is this something that you, when, when one, uh, when one tries to landscape nature, should it be conscious? Should it be one where we think we're in nature that we imagine we're in a, in the wilderness? Or, or, or is it always important to remind people that they're in a place, a space, which has actually been designed by people, by humans? I think we're fooling us ourselves if we think we're in true wilderness. Um, I think um, what we've tried to do is, is find those ways to connect people to nature. And it's very personal and it's very individual. Um, a lot of what we do I boil down to what I call invisible details. They're details that matter when you need them. Um, and I won't, we can digress into that in a little bit later, but let me get back to your point. I think um, we are, I think, have the opportunity to use design to create settings where we engage with nature at the capacity that we want. Um, I just returned from hiking in uh, Lake Louise um, up in Canada and uh, went on some pretty wonderful trails. Um, um, that opportunity to immerse myself in that kind of setting is very different than what I'm trying to create, let's say, in Rockefeller Center or at the Channel Gardens or um, in any number of our other gardens. You follow what I'm getting at, Andrew? I don't know if I'm being clear or not. But... No, you're being very clear. Your, your clarity is, uh, is, is edifying. Um, you, you've done a lot of work also when it comes to children in the environment. Um, Children's outdoor environments is one of the, the specialities of, of your firm. What, what, what is it about kids that make them so hungry for the dirt, for nature, do you think? I mean, I'm not suggesting that older people aren't uh, in, as enthusiastic, but often it, it's the kids who embrace nature. What have you found? And, and what, what are the challenges and opportunities as a, a landscape architect? Uh, for designing spaces for children. Well, that's a that's a great topic, Andrew. Um, um, 
I think children, in a sense, aren't don't have, let's say, the filters that we as adults have um, um, in terms of nature. There's a pure joy. Uh, some adults maintain it. Um, E.O. Wilson um, um, has a childlike joy. <laughs> well, there is. Yeah, if, every, if, the world, if everyone in the world was like E.O. Wilson, uh, but, uh, we wouldn't have this show or books. We would all be very happy. We, we all be but the point I'm making is that he has dropped all those filters and the, he has maintained that joy. And I think working... It's an innocence, him, isn't it, David? It's, it is an innocence, but... Um, but he is well aware of, of, of let's say, that position, I think, well aware of that position as an adult viewing nature versus, let's say, a child. And I feel fortunate, you know, I'm still fascinated by clouds, you know, and I'll sit on my terrace and I'll look at clouds and I'll try to say, well, that looks like a Magritte, you know, cloud or, you know, it looks like Turner is coming up here. Um, so I think we all deserve the chance to reconnect at that level. Um, but working with children uh, is fascinating because they are exposed for the first time. Um, and I think you have the chance to guide them in terms of that discovery. Uh, my childhood was spent, you know, in nature. You know, I know, I knew quite young what a water moccasin looked like in a creek, you know, and his mouth was open, there he was. Um, so I think that element of learning uh, is essential for kids working for kids with autism um or uh, is an incredible challenge because uh each child processes information differently and often contradictorily what might be engaging for one child um is frightening to another um so when you're creating a garden uh, a setting, a controlled setting that has to engage everyone, regardless of capability, um, it requires some real thinking. Um, how do you create the chance for a child to choose? I want to go here, but I definitely don't want to go there. Um, and it takes, in a sense, a particular level of sensitivity uh, of one working with staff to sort of understand how they work with kids, how they solve problems with kids, how they solve challenges with kids, and using design as that tool. Um, uh, I think the working uh, one with children is one of the great, beautiful challenges. Working with autistic kids is one of the most engaging opportunities any designer should have because it does require you to think carefully on every detail um, and what that setting could do to a child, um, both positive and negative. What about the socioeconomics of all this, David? Um, one of the very troubling, I think, aspects of our current environmental crisis is it experienced very differently by socioeconomic groups. The wealthy have their retreats, they have their estates, they have their nature trails. Yeah. The poor live in their concrete suburbs or cent uh, 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 cities. Um, do you, as a, uh, a landscape architect, do you need to take into account socioeconomics, for example, when you're you're, you're, you're designing your, your kids' outdoor environments or you're, uh, or you're focusing on uh, environments for autistic kids? Absolutely. It's, um, 
it's finding a common language. Um, if, if we look at it from a social non-economic standpoint, we can also look at it from a cultural standpoint. Um, and I'll, I'll start big, if it's all right, and then we'll go down, if you don't mind, in scale. Um, a couple of years ago, I was asked to help frame some policy directions for how to address climate change on a global scale. Um, and part of that meant finding a common language across many cultures. I mean, what connected Edinburgh and, um, let's say, um, Lagos. Uh, exactly. With, you know, with, you know, the Marshall Islands, what are those threads, um, that connect everyone at a cultural level at that scale? Um, you have to do the same thing when you're looking at socioeconomic, what are the threads that unite us all? Um, and it's essential to find that language to connect. Um, what um, to use a language for, let's say, a wealthy spa in, let's say, in a small urban garden um, in a, um, um, let's say, a challenging part of a city just won't work. It's just the language isn't there. Um, what are the values? What's what are the essential the essential elements that they value? And it's why we spend a huge amount of time just talking. Yeah. You know? What does nature mean to you? You know, what is a garden? You know, I said, did you have a garden growing up? And a lot of that came. The first garden I did uh, was for individuals with HIV. And it was one of the first gardens in New York City. In fact, it was the first garden in New York City dedicated specifically to AIDS. And this was just as AIDS was. Whereabouts was it in New York City? It was in a uh, facility called Terrence Cardinal Cook Healthcare Center. Uh, it was run by the Archdiocese. It was the first facility that um, offered care to individuals with HIV. Um, this was back before we had the cocktails. Um, palliative care is what they offered. And um, so when they asked me to come up and look at a rooftop, um, it was about providing palliative care. Uh, there were no solutions. Um, there was no design research to draw upon. There was no medical protocols to, to design upon. We simply talked to the staff and talked to the patients and said, gee, did you have a garden growing up? Many of them didn't. They came from, you know, South Bronx or whatever, but they had grandparents that had a garden. So we drew upon childhood memories as a way to get to find the language as to what that garden should say to them. Um, this garden has changed over the years as the population changed. And to me, it's been a wonderful, let's say, validation of some basic premises about using a framework um, for design that can follow the ebb and flow of an illness. Look at the trajectory of AIDS from where it started and where it is now. Um, design can can in a sense, be the room, the structure, you know, the foundation for changing attitudes towards design, uh, towards AIDS. Um, so here was a, say, a space that we looked right to the residents, right to the staff and said, you know, what language would work for you? What does a garden mean for you? You've also written, and I know in the book, you focus on the idea of natural environments or landscape architecture as a way of strengthening community. How does that work? How does work by guys like yourself, good work, how does it strengthen community? Um, you find shared values. Um, it's a way of having neighbors talk. Um, 
we did a, um, a community for elder adults with developmental disabilities in upstate New York um, that, in a sense, started, um, we started on a, um, 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 a very um, challenging piece of land. And our first goal was, our first question was, how do you heal an unhealthy site? Um, and what we did was the healing process that we developed for nature was also the way to build community, that the community itself participated in healing that piece of land. Uh, it meant they were part of the process. Um, and we've done the same thing in urban communities where a neighborhood can come together and say, um, this is our land um, and it needs help. It needs healing. How do we participate? So can you see the, the, the collective sense of purpose uh, that can come when there is a shared goal and a shared value uh, in both of those situations in rural upstate New York and in the South Bronx, it was helping to heal the land, to help bring nature back. That was the unifying element. That's what built community. A couple of weeks ago, I was in upstate New York in Hudson, which is being revitalized. It, it brings to mind uh, Thomas More's 16th century book, a book I'm very familiar with, Utopia, which imagined the cities of his time. They weren't really 21st century cities, but places where people lived uh, in idyllic, natural terms. When one thinks, David, of revitalizing or reinventing places, old industrial places like Hudson, which are becoming quite fashionable. I've got some friends who are involved in doing this. What's the role of, of nature? If you were reimagining a place like Hudson or so many of those other old industrial towns that are in the process of being reinvented in the Hudson Valley, what work would you do? What, how would you bring in landscape architecture? I, I, I would find ways, use nature as a thread, use as a thread to help unite the community. Um, part of what I think is fascinating is, um, and, um, is this idea of sort of understanding an everyday experience of nature, not just sort of the big nature. I mean, like, you know, out in, you know, Lake Louise, that's big nature, but there's also nature right outside your door, uh, right down the street. Um, I would find ways that you bring in the nature as the thread that weaves through the community. Um, it's the daily ebb and flow. It's the seasonal changes that in a sense, those are those small subtle moments um, that, and I think helps bring nature subconsciously into the rhythms of our own lives. Uh, years ago, we did a, a project in um, um, Pennsylvania, uh, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, to honor uh, Flight 93. Yeah, uh, I was about to, I, I guess that. Uh, what was fascinating about that was I was brought out by the, uh, by the U.S. Forest Service because they had, in a sense, a, a grant to help communities that were influenced by this, both in New Jersey, um, in Washington, and out in Pennsylvania. And they asked me to come out and help them set up guidelines for a lot of these communities for how they can address with crisis. Uh, you know, Andrew, what impressed me so much, and I was out in, um, at, at, the, uh, at the crash site in Pennsylvania about a month after, after it happened, um, 
what I was so impressed was how the community came together. This was a very depressed community. Um, mining had left. Uh, the only thing really there was, quite frankly, the maple syrup industry, and that was tourism. Um, and I was so impressed with how the entire community rose to the occasion um, and, in a sense, defined what a community means in times of crisis. And our solution and our way to express them was to use maple trees, plant maple trees all over the county um, as a subtle way to remind them of, of coming together in times of crisis. Um, and there is, is, in a sense, and it's a very different response than what you're describing in Hudson, let's say, but nature's the thread that weaves through that community that reminds them um, of what they did. Um, these trees are now, you know, they're grown in the local community college and, you know, the students there, you know, learn surveying, they learn how to plant the trees and whatever, and they live there and they see the trees growing up and they know that sense of continuity, their grandkids, they will have picnics underneath these trees. So, um, I think in very subtle ways in very profound ways and very obvious ways, but also in very subtle ways, we can bring nature into our lives, um, and help strengthen a sense of community yeah it's interesting we last year i did a show with another uh, environmental writer tony hiss believes that we should give half the land back to nature in other words essentially partition the world into nature yeah. and human world and i'm guessing you would probably disagree with Hiss, although i'm sure on on, on many other fronts you would agree on on other things what about this split um, David, between the public and, and the private. Um, in Moore's utopia, he imagined a world where everything was publicly owned. Do you focus mostly on private spaces? Um, I mean, obviously, the Australian Parliament is a public space. Does it require different kind of aesthetics, a different approach when you're doing landscape architecture of a private versus a public space? Um, most of our work um, is not private. Um, I, would, I would call a majority of it public, or, and I'll use the term institutional. It's, it's schools, it's, it's health you know, uh, systems, um, it's, it's, it's public parks. Um, private work, I think, um, we've always kept a certain amount of private work because I love the intimacy that one can achieve at that level. Um, what we try to do is bring that in level of intimacy into the public work. Um, so I often use a lot of private work for how we, in a sense, create intimacy. Um, and some of my, to me, to my most favorite projects are public works that have a sense of intimacy so that you could go into a public setting and have intimacy in nature. So uh, to me, a lot of private work, for me at least, has been a testing ground for finding the tools to bring intimacy, because we all need intimacy, even if it's just a moment to pause, um, you know, on a hallway in a, in a hospital, in a public garden, uh, you know, in, in any sort of setting that, in a sense, has an influx of people. How do you create places to pause? Um, and I found a lot of those tools are complementary. Yeah, and that intimacy, I guess, overcomes loneliness. The Surgeon General just warned us about our epidemic of loneliness, uh, associating loneliness also with social media. 
as digital designers who are kind of parallel to you, complementary in some ways, as they try to figure out how to build a more public internet, you have, of course, networks like Facebook and Twitter that pretend to be public but are actually private. What advice would, as a, as a, as a landscape architect, um, the author of this book, Nature, Design and Health, what advice would you give digital architects trying to create public spaces for the internet? Um, do not be frightened by the word intimacy. Um, I, I often use the term intimacy in design. It requires um, a different way of thinking. Um, and it requires you actually to think deeply uh, and probably more complexly about the results of your design. So um, to me, it takes a discipline to want to encourage or want to incorporate intimacy in design. But I think, I think it's essential for design to be successful is, is, is to create those places. Um, and there's a difference between privacy and implied privacy or intimacy and implied intimacy. It's not about, you know, a sort of a, you know, a, often an enclosure that is totally separate from the world. It's a space that you can simply step back from the world. Um, it might be a space that has a bench and maybe some multi-stem trees that you can see through the trees and the trees act as a veil from, let's say, um, uh, the passersby. We've used this often in, in a number of, of settings, um, in a cancer center, using shafts of, of, of bamboo so that somebody who's just had treatment can step into the garden have this bamboo veil, uh, which acts as a screen before they're ready. And when they are ready, then they can step out into the promenade. Um, but I think designers need to delve into that very, very difficult area of intimacy and design. And I'm guessing for you, intimacy is not the same as personalization. There's a fetish for, well, there yes. was a fetish for personalization on the internet, which yes. is many people believe is actually undermined it. Those aren't the same things, are they? Intimacy and personalization. They're not. And intimacy to me is just that place that you can step back um, and observe the world. Um, pause for a moment or an hour or whatever it is and then step back out. Um, I think those choices, uh, and I, I use the words opportunity and choice a lot, Andrew, because I think that's so much of what design has has the chance to do, um, offer people those choices. Uh, it's very empowering uh, when you give people choice. Final question, uh, David. I have to admit, when I was preparing for this, I never expected you to be living in Palm Beach, Florida. Florida, of course, gets a lot of bad press because of the oh, scientists okay. and because the boiling seas of Florida, and it seems as if Florida in many ways is ground zero for our environmental crisis, which some people see as existential. You clearly like it. What is it about Florida that intrigues you as a landscape architect? Why have you chosen to, to um, relocate to Palm Beach? Well, um, growing up, never in my wildest dreams had ever thought I'd live in Florida. Um, but at my point in life, I wanted a new nature. Um, I've been to the Everglades many times you know, growing up and, um, and as an adult been through good bits of Florida growing up, but 
what I wanted to do was live here. I wanted to see nature on that everyday experience. Uh, so we purposely moved here. We had a marvelous place on Shelter Island, just off the end of Long Island. Uh, big garden, you know, great house, you know, horses, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, wanted a new nature. Uh, wanted to experience a new nature. And I'll tell you, uh, the chance to... In a sense, a, a lot of what I find the nature here does is it it celebrates those who pause. Uh, it's like the Everglades. You could drive through the Everglades and say, what in the devil is all this about? If you stop and pause, you see the ecosystems. You see the subtle change of what six inches of Earth does. Uh, I think by moving here, I've had the chance to see that in a nature that I never appreciated. Uh, I think it applies everywhere. I think if you simply pause and observe, uh, there's a richness uh, to nature, no matter where you are. I just wanted to try it in Florida. 